Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome James Reyes Picknall to the podcast. Welcome back, James. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Excellent. So you've been on a few times to talk about, I believe it was uptime in the past. I believe we talked about reliability-centered maintenance re-engineered or RCMR, the book you co-authored. But it's great to have you back on again. Well, thank you. It's a, it's indeed a pleasure uh, for me as well. Uh, I, I rather enjoy these interactions. And uh, these days when everybody's staying at home, it's nice just to be talking with someone, to be quite honest. So <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I, I'm looking forward to this. All right, perfect. So those that may not be familiar with you, James, you're an author, you know, Uptime Strategies for Excellence in Maintenance Management, which was the first book I read to get involved with maintenance management, going back about Oh, I don't even know what it was now. 16 years ago, I think. Wow. Um, so, you know, great book there. Same with Reliability Centered, Maintenance Reengineered. And then your new one, which I haven't read yet, but I got to, is Paying Your Way. Right. So aside from authoring, you train, you consult in maintenance, reliability, and asset management areas across all different sectors. Although super brief, is there anything else you want to fill in on your bio? Um. You know, just uh, uh, it's it's been a long time in the field. <laughs> I guess loads of experience uh, uh, in, as, as you say, multiple sectors. Uh, there's not too many industries I haven't worked in, and I think the only continent I haven't worked on is Antarctica. Um, but in total, about 43 years uh, in engineering, reliability, maintenance, uh, and asset management. So it's a, it's a long time uh, and a lot of experience from that. All right, excellent. And I want to draw on that experience today because what I really want to talk about is something you actually said. I think this is going back maybe a year or two ago, but you said manage all failures or else. Mm -hmm. And that kind of spurred (laughs) this conversation. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. So Terrific. I kind of wondered where you got the heading from. (laughs) It was from you. You said it at some point. (laughs) Sounds like something I'd say. So what I want to talk about first is what is a failure? Because I think there's a lot of different perceptions of what failure is out there. Well, that's right. And and uh, I think one misperception is that a failure means that your equipment is completely trashed. Um, that is not necessarily the case, although that would count as a failure. Um, that's only one type of failure. Uh, failure to me is actually a loss of any function that you want your physical assets to perform. So if you want it to contain while it's actually pumping, for example, uh, it can leak and be failed even though it's actually still pumping. So that, that's a that's a simple example, but uh, but every asset typically has multiple uh, functions that it performs, and for many of them, different standards of performance. And if, if you drop performance below what you want from an asset, you're now in a failed state, even though it might still be running. It's just not doing what you want it to do. So so I describe a failure as a loss uh, or inability to perform any desired function of an asset. 
All right, excellent. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Like you said, it's not just meaning that the equipment is a burning hunk of metal. Like you said, on a pump, it could be the fact that it's leaking because maybe that is a dangerous substance now that's leaking, poses an environmental or health and safety risk. That's a loss of function. So Exactly. Now, when we talk about managing failures, what do you mean by manage failures? Is it just we're going to prevent every single failure from occurring or is there other things behind that? Well, no, it doesn't mean we're going to prevent them all from occurring. In fact, you can't. Uh, so so they're, you're, you're kind of wasting your time if you, if you attempt to do that. Um, there, there's actually a pretty common perception that we, we can manage failures. And, and in reality, what we really manage is, in most cases, the consequences of the failures, not the failures themselves. We uh, can, in some cases, prevent failures, which would be managing uh, the failure itself as well as its consequences, but that only applies to those things that fail um, uh, with age or usage uh, or, uh, or or throughput, for example. So something wears out as a as a result of being used a lot. Um, well, before it gets to that worn out state, you can change things out and, and bring it back to original performance. So you've 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 managed the failure in that case by preventing the total loss of it. Uh, in many other cases, though, and in fact, it's the majority of cases, the failures occur uh, randomly and, and they're going to happen whether you like it or not, um, on, unless you can eliminate and, and, and uh, um, uh, eliminate all of the random causes that lead to failures. Uh, you're not going to eliminate those failures and, and eliminating all those causes is, um, is something you're unlikely to be able uh, to do. So, so failures, as I see it, are pretty much a, a, a natural thing that we just have to learn to live with. Now, prevention, yeah, we're managing the failure. Predicting them, though, um, predictive maintenance condition monitoring, if you prefer, uh, is used for many random failures and some age or usage-related failures to give us uh, an early sign that the failure has, in fact, already started and is progressing and progressively getting worse. All right, so we, we want to catch them early. We haven't prevented them. Um, we're not actually managing the failure, but we are managing uh, when we act on it. And of course, as a result of that, the consequences that we uh, suffer um, depending on when we act on it. So if we don't act in a timely manner, uh, the failure will progress to that smoking heap of metal, as, as you said earlier, and, and we'll have all the consequences associated with that, the, the high cost of repair, the loss of production, and, and so forth. But if we catch it early and act early, um, we can time our actions to avoid most of those consequences. We can keep the repair to a, a more controllable, um, lesser level. Uh, we can time it so that we take the downtime when it's convenient or when we've already arranged for some alternative to take over that function. So, so that's what I really mean when I'm talking about managing failures, is, is managing really the consequences of the failures. All right, so we're managing the consequences. So in some instances, we may in install redundancy, so that way there's no consequences. Well, there's no consequences if the redundant equipment actually works when you need it. Uh, <laughs> that too has to be managed. <laughs> yes. Agree 100%. We all have seen those standby pumps that don't actually start when you need them to. 
Exactly. And, and, you know, we've got predictive and preventive maintenance that we've talked about for those standby equipments. Um, and I'm kind of glad you raised them, actually. Uh, we actually have to test them periodically to make sure that they are available when we need them. So we're, we're, the, the consequence of failure of those really is, is nothing as long as the equipment they're backing up is working, but can be quite severe if the equipment you're backing up fails and the backup doesn't work. Um, normally, you would only invest that capital in that backup or, or standby equipment uh, if there was some function that you really needed to have going for a very good reason. Um, because the the capital cost of putting that uh, extra equipment in is is uh, is something that would likely need to be justified on the basis of uh, uh, lo potential losses if it wasn't there. Yes, absolutely, and it's important that we do those failure finding tasks, or we do something to mitigate that risk, right? Absolutely, and and uh, the timing of those, of course, is also critical. But we're not going to talk about how you calculate that here, I, I imagine. <laughs> no, we're not getting that deep. So okay. So can we just manage the, the failures we have experienced in the past, or can we manage failures that could potentially occur? Uh, well, we do both, actually. Um, we, we certainly, if it's happened in the past, um, there's no doubt in your mind that it could happen again, and, and therefore it's something worth um, doing something about. All right. And, and uh, uh, when, when I do, uh, I, I do a lot of this forecasting in, in reliability centered maintenance uh, work. And, and one of the sources of, of telling us what the failures are is actually our past experience. So, so yeah, we can indeed manage those. Um, but we can also forecast what could happen in the future. And, and we do that by making some reasonable assumptions around our, our operating context and the stressors that we are putting on the equipment uh, so that we, we can forecast how it might fail. Even if we haven't experienced the failures, it doesn't mean that, it, that we won't see new failures. Um, so so we, we look at what happens perhaps on, on similar equipment. And uh, if our, our equipment is operating in a similar way or using similar components, it may also suffer uh, similar failures. Um, the, uh, the method at RCM that, that I used to do it was actually developed for use at the design stage of assets. And, and when you're designing something new, you don't have a failure history for it. So, so you, you're forecasting all of the failures, in fact, not just the, uh, uh, the ones that you've seen before. Uh, in fact, if you waited until you've seen failures to determine a maintenance program on an aircraft where that method was developed, uh, you'd be probably having an awful lot of crashes before you had a complete maintenance program. And, and that's, of course, not going to be acceptable to anyone. So, so we do look at past history where we have it. We look at past history on similar devices or systems or, or equipment to, to help inform us. And, and we, uh, we use our common sense looking at what's there and, and uh, uh, you, you know, examining, well, how might this fail? And uh, we do come up with, with answers to those questions, and then we can deal with those, those possibilities. All right, excellent. So we're using both past history forecasting what could potentially fail in the future and we have to manage all those now why do we need to manage all those different failures it seems like a lot of work well it is a lot of work and uh, uh, what we don't know when we identify a failure is what its consequences are going to be unless of course it's already occurred now um, we we do when we identify the failures identify what could occur what, what what are the possible consequences that could come from it and then we make a decision as to whether it's worth doing something about it or not uh, we we don't just take 
all of the identified failures and put some kind of proactive maintenance strategy in place. Uh, first of all, not all of them will have a, an effective proactive maintenance strategy, so we might be forced in some cases to do nothing and, and let it fail. Uh, in other cases, though, um, we have to look at that potential um, maintenance approach and decide if it's worth our while to do it. Now, if it's, um, if for example, the failure is resulting in a major loss of production or perhaps a safety, uh, a high safety risk or a, or a, a severe environmental um, consequence that could occur when the failure happens, then we definitely want to do something proactive and keep out of those situations because they're, they're going to get us in trouble in a whole bunch of ways. If, however, the failure is, uh, say, on that pump that has a backup, uh, well, as long as the backup's working, you could, in, in theory, let that pump just fail. It could stop pumping. The other one's there. You're going to use it. You're, you're going to avoid the consequences by having that backup and making sure that it can work. So, so in that case of the pump that's backed up, you could indeed let it run to failure. Now, of course, if the the cost of letting it run to failure is incredibly high, and and the and the cost of repair uh, that would would happen if you if you say predicted the failure in advance, then maybe the prediction is worthwhile doing as well. But you, you do need to look at the costs of doing that and balance them. And, and when it comes to safety in the environment, we we actually tend not to pay as much attention to cost and, and put a lot more. Um, weight onto the risks and the risk avoidance that we're generating by taking action. But we, we, we have to look at all failures and understand their consequences before we can actually make those decisions. So, so when I say manage all failures, it means we have to actually look at them and make some decisions. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to actually do something about all of them, um, but we do have to make decisions. All right, perfect. And I'm glad you mentioned that. You have to make a deliberate decision. And sometimes that decision is run to fail. Absolutely. But we made the appropriate decision based on the cost versus benefits and maybe a few other factors. But we actually made a decision. We didn't default to it. Exactly. Exactly. You're managing your own future. You're not letting the equipment do it for you. <laughs> right. Now, with that being said, what risks are we exposed to if we don't manage all those failures or we default to a certain strategy? Well, um, if we don't manage the, the consequences and the failures that lead to them, uh, we certainly will suffer those consequences. We, we, we could have that major loss of production. We could have that safety incident. We could have that environmental non-compliance. Uh, so, so those events would likely occur. And, and if that happens, uh, whatever costs or penalties or fines or jail terms or whatever it happens to be that comes along with the consequence uh, is something that you are, are, are risking and, and putting on the table. Uh, so uh, the risks you're exposed to go beyond the physical risk of just, okay, I lost the pump. Well, if that pump was, say, a cooling pump on a, on a uh, chemical process uh, that, that was important for keeping temperatures down to avoid a runaway reaction, for example, um, then... Um, and, you know, if you let it occur, you're going to have the high temperatures, you're going to have the, uh, the runaway reaction and, and potentially overpressurization on some vessels, leaks of whatever that substance is out to the atmosphere, potentially fire, could injure people, could be an environmental noncompliance. So there's a lot of stuff that could happen uh, if you just allow stuff to occur. So, so if you de the default maintenance strategy is always run to failure. And, and uh, you know, if you do nothing else, you don't think about it at all, uh, everything will eventually just fail. That's that's the natural state of, of affairs. In fact, the second law of thermodynamics would even uh, uh, 
sort of uh, uh, dictate that anything that we do is going to run to failure eventually if we don't do something to avoid it. We have to put energy in, and and that energy in in our world is is maintenance. So so the the, the things that we're exposed to go beyond just the actual physical failure of the equipment, but the business losses, the safety impacts, the uh, environmental impacts, the fines that might be uh, levied, uh, the, um, uh, you know, having to go and tell somebody that they've just lost their husband because he was killed on the job uh, because you didn't do maintenance. Um, I'm sure the courts would look really nastily at that. Um, we've already seen in some cases companies taken to court and executives jailed and, and, and as a result of failures that they failed to manage. Um, you know, there's some big ones too, some big cases out there. Yep, absolutely. There's all kinds of risks at all different levels within the organization. Um, so we have to make a conscious decision to manage them. Now, exactly. previously you mentioned that you forecast failures that we have not yet experienced. How do you do that? Are you use leveraging experience on like equipment or like components? How do you really forecast those? Well, um, it's a lot of common sense and experience. So somebody who's not familiar with the equipment and how it could potentially fail, uh, even in different applications, uh, is going to struggle with this part of it. Um, um, but if you've got some experience under your belt, it's actually not that difficult to do. Now, one one area you look at, of course, are your, your maintenance history and look for what have, has ever failed in the past. All right. Then as long as you know what that is, you've, you've got something that you can be managing. Another thing is to, to look at is actually your PM program, if you already have one. Uh, the, the PM program you have is probably already doing some good uh, and and avoiding some failures or, or at least minimizing their consequences. And, and if you look at the existing PMs, they'll give you an idea of what failure uh, failures uh, are already being dealt with and and they may or may not be dealt with appropriately so you want to review those as, as part of your your examinations here uh, but that's a good source of what could fail uh, the other thing is to look at uh, uh, the things that could potentially happen even if you haven't seen them so so for example let's say you're looking at electrical equipment and you got transformers and, and you know transformers basically a couple of coils of wire wrapped around an iron core and dunked in a tank of oil well that tank could leak, for example. It may not happen for 30, 40, 50 years, but it could happen. Um, it could corrode um, and and uh, lose containment that way. It, it could uh, have something hit it. Uh, you know, it's, if, depending on where it's located, uh, you, you know, it, it could be in an area where there's, there's uh, traffic and, and the potential for collision is there. Um, so, so you can look at, you know, just what makes sense when you look at it. Um, we all know that dirt builds up on things over time. If you've got a, a heat exchange surface of any sort, um, it's not unreasonable to assume that it could be fouled and, and uh, lose heat transfer capabilities. Um, if you uh, look at what's happened with similar equipment, you know, like a new aircraft, for example, that's that's one that uh, I've used a lot. Uh, if um, you look at past aircraft failures, uh, they give you and, and, and what's happened and what's caused those. That gives you a pretty good idea what could happen on your design if you have similar designs in place. Um, there are also databases you can go to of failure modes uh, on typically on devices. And, and um, there, there used to be a Canadian one that I don't think is around anymore that uh, talked about equipment like 
pumps and compressors and things. Um, but the other ones that I've seen are largely on electronic and non-electronic parts. Um, and uh, the, the U.S. military actually generated quite quite a good uh, database of, uh, of failures that could happen on, on components of various types. And if your system includes those components, then those failure modes could exist in it. So there are there are those databases and, and probably others out there that I haven't stumbled on yet. Um, and, and of course, just using um, brainstorming, uh, you know, a group of people when, when I do failure modes in an RCM analysis, for instance, uh, I, I just ask people, OK, what could cause this to lose uh, this function? And we look at all the components in the system and say, could this fail and cause that to uh, to occur, and if the answer is yes, okay, how could it fail? And and they come up with some answers. So, um, it's uh, it's a combination of things, uh, you, you know. And it's uh, as I said, it's not all based on your experience with that particular asset, because that particular asset might be brand new, um, and and uh, and have so far experienced no failures. It may not even be built yet. Um, I, I have done RCM in, in the design stages of, of various systems and, and come up with some fairly long lists of, of potential failures, uh, all based on experience with other systems um, uh, that are, are similar, other components that are similar, um, other applications that might be uh, similar. So, so there's, there's quite a wealth of information out there if you want to just uh, dig into it and, and think about it. But it does take a little bit of experience, I think, to do it well. Yeah, I think so. Because um, I get asked by the, asked that by a lot of clients is, well, it's a brand new piece of equipment. We don't know how it's going to fail. Yeah, but you have 20 some other very similar pieces of equipment, even from the same manufacturer on site. I'm sure that'll exactly. gain some insight, right? That's exactly right. And and uh, it, it's funny how people seem to not think about that. And I, I'm per, perhaps it's just because I've been doing it so long, but I'm, I'm just my mind boggles when I hear things like that. <laughs> <laughs> You mean it's a new transformer? Don't you have some of those around there already? Uh, <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio's IBL blended learning for maintenance and reliability professionals. This SMRP accredited project-based curriculum will take you through all aspects of a maintenance and reliability program and provides you with all the tools you need to generate a 30 times return on investment for your organization and a set of credentials from the University of Tennessee for you. You can find out more at ibltraining.com. So as we do this, we're going to generate some fairly large lists of potential failures that could occur on this equipment. Where do we get the resources to manage all these things? Well, um, I guess when you're talking about resources, I have to ask you a question. Are you talking about people or all the resources needed to manage them? I'm going to I'm going to say it's a combination of the people or the funds to either redesign or put mm -hmm. online systems or redundancy or design changes in. Right. OK. Um, well, chances are you've already got a lot of the resources. For example, the, 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 the methodology is going to produce a whole bunch of tasks with frequencies and, and who does it. Uh, unless you're planning on having a zero maintenance workforce, you will have the people to do the maintenance tasks. Now, do you have them in the right numbers? That That's debatable, but, but you will have the people there. You, you, the analysis helps you size your workforce, actually. Um, 
if you've not been managing failures very well in the past, so let's say you've got an existing operation, you do an RCM analysis, redesign of the asset itself is usually not a great option because it's difficult to do in an existing operation uh, and very, very costly. So, so that's usually kind of the last resort. But, uh, but you will come up with maintenance program and you got maintenance maintainers. And, and if you're already uh, experiencing a lot of failures, you're probably doing a lot of repair work. And, and as, as you know, if you're not real good at planning and scheduling, that repair work is probably not as efficient as it could be. Uh, and that means that your maintenance workforce is in all probability somewhat oversized to begin with. So you've got that resource. The other resources you might need are the various predictive technologies. Uh, that they would use. Now, you may have some of those, like you may have a vibration analyzer, but maybe you've realized that ultrasound would be better or thermal imaging would be better. So now you need ultrasonic, uh, uh, ultrasound equipment, you need some thermal imaging equipment. Maybe you've decided that you want to do oil analysis. Uh, well, you don't have a lab, so you're going to have to contract that out. So all, all that stuff can be bought. Um, it's a matter of, do you have enough money for it? And, and of course, that becomes a, a, an economic decision. So you've got a failure with consequences and certain dollar values associated to those failures. You've got a, uh, a technique that you can use if it were available and you have to spend money to get it. Well, that can actually be part of the analysis right up front. So if, if the analysis still comes out and says, yep, go buy that ultrasound equipment, then go buy it. Uh, it's cheaper than living with the consequences of the failures. So it, it, it really does boil down to just making intelligent decisions to using the the uh, money that you have available to you uh, wisely. Um, and if you don't use it wisely, you will end up spending probably a lot more later um, unwisely. Um, so, so that's it. Now, if you're at the design stage, um, the, uh, there's really no limit on resources at that point because it's all on paper. Um, now, you may have limited capital funds, um, but you may also be looking at a situation where okay, capital funds are limited, but uh, you've realized that you need uh, certain changes to be made either in the design or perhaps develop a maintenance program, and that's going to add to capital cost. Well, are, are you looking for return on investment or are you looking for return on the asset itself? And, and I think that's, it, the, that's the big question that everyone gets yeah. stuck with. Well, it, it, it does it does come up. And, and return on investment means that, you know, I, I've poked out, you know, several million dollars of capital investment and, and, and I want to get a return on that. Um, but how do they measure it? And, and, and in most cases, people don't measure the actual return. They, they measure the spend. So they, they know that part of the equation. But they really don't know what they get back because they rarely ever actually measure it. Uh, they assume it's going to be a certain amount. Um, and, uh, you know, in the early stages of life of, say, a new plant, uh, you know, the, the, the managers might, might be aware of that. And, and when they see production drop below certain levels, they realize that, oh, my God, the company's not making its money back on that investment. Um, but it doesn't take too long for people to forget all that. What you want is an ongoing stream of income coming from that asset uh, and a minimal amount of money going out. And, and um, that is, is where the return on the asset comes in. So it's, it's more of a life cycle decision than an upfront capital decision making type of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and you got to get smart about it. M most companies tend not to think about uh, total life cycle costing and and return on an asset investment. Um, you know, like for for example, spending more on an, uh, a more expensive, more capable, higher quality asset initially may result in fewer failures down the road, which means less repair cost and more 
running time to produce whatever it is you're producing. Um, that's money that you wouldn't necessarily see if you did a pure return on investment calculation, because the return on investment is you're more likely to lower the capital cost than you are to increase the output uh, when making those decisions. So, so return on investment tends to lead to cost cutting decisions. Return on asset tends to lead to some, some better decisions around uh, both costs and revenues. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand those variables because, for example, you know, I worked with one organization where they're putting in two new lines and the way they had them situated is these two equipment centers, the operator stations were on opposite sides of each other. So mm -hmm. as a result, they had to have two operators to run those two equipment centers. But by forking over an extra nominal amount, like 40, 50 grand, they could have them flipped over the other way so one operator could work both control panels. Exactly. And and they'd probably find some other synergies as a result of that also. But yes. people don't think about that. They tend to look for the cheapest solution up front. And, and they, the, the, the return on investment calculation that gets done is usually done at the stage where you're actually um, justifying the project initially. Yep. And, and once that justification is done, it's, you know, and the torpedo is full speed ahead. And, and uh, when you realize that Oop, maybe there's a better way to do it, well, we don't have the money in the budget, can't do it. And, and, and that's it ends there. Um, and, and people don't look down the road at the operational uh, and maintenance benefits from, from making some of these changes at the design stage. It's, it's the, the, you know, some organizations are pretty smart about it and do do that. But, but uh, by and large, from what I've seen, most don't. Excellent. Now, this may be a shameless plug on your part, um, but your book, the one you just wrote on payback, does that cover yes. these topics in detail? Yep. Perfect. All right. I know what I'm ordering. Then. <laughs> yeah, it talks about the, um, uh, the the actual business case for asset management or, or reliability. Right? The, I, I, I tend to think of, um, although my career has been largely in what I would call maintenance management, I've, I've kind of realized in the last few years that it's really been about reliability and, and um, sustaining reliable operations. Maintenance being what we do to achieve that, but reliability is actually the result that you're after. And, and uh, that's, that, that's led to some different thinking on my part. And, and people that I've talked about that with have also said, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and they, they rather liked it. Um, so so when, you, when you start thinking about reliability, you're looking at things a little bit differently. All right, perfect. So we have to make those economic decisions all throughout the life cycle of it, what strategies do we really have for managing the failures then? So we got like design changes we talked about. We talked about preventative yep. maintenance early on. Yep. What other strategies do we have? Well, uh, design changes are pretty obvious. Uh, preventive, uh, as you and I know, maybe not all our listeners uh, know, but uh, that that's a, a time or usage uh, or throughput-based interval, uh, inter- Invention uh, where you restore condition of the asset or replace it. Okay, and that tends to be kind of expensive, and it tends to be done fairly early in an asset's um, life after you start it up and before it gets to its mean time between failures. Right, so um, 
these are these tend to be age-related failures that have a normal distribution. And, and if you're going to avoid most of the failures, you're going to be changing them out long before you get to that average failure age. So that tends to be kind of an expensive strategy. Uh, and, and you will hear maintainers complain that, oh, my God, I'm throwing out all this good stuff. And, and indeed, they are. Um, so the, the justification for the cost of doing that must be pretty substantial. Um, the other strategies are, are predictive maintenance or condition monitoring, as, as uh, it's also known, or condition-based maintenance, as it's also known, or on-condition maintenance, as it's also known. It's got a number of names. Uh, but what you're doing there is looking at the uh, performance of the equipment against either its performance parameters, uh, the functional performance parameters, or you're looking at the condition of the various components of the asset by looking at signals that they generate when they start to go uh, south on you, so higher vibrations, higher temperatures, uh, ultrasonic signatures revealing problems like leaks and things like that, uh, particles in the oil, um, oil properties degrading. So, so these are things that we can monitor with condition monitoring, and and what that does is is basically. Um, uh, while the equipment's running and everything's fine, it does nothing for us but but spend effort doing condition monitoring. Um, when we find a problem, though, um, we're now seeing the early signs of failures uh, in our systems. And, and, and what these warnings give us is an opportunity to act on those warnings so we can... Uh, we can take it out of service and, and, and correct whatever situation we have before we suffer any other consequences. So, so that's what predictive maintenance does for us. Um, there's testing, uh, failure finding tests, which are, deal with those backup or safety alarm shutdown type devices. Uh, and we, we test periodically to see if it's still working. Now, um, with testing, you have to do it fairly frequently. And you do that because uh, the device might be working when you test it, but it might not be working after you've tested it. And you won't know that because it fails in a way that's not evident. And, and of course, that's, that's quite problematic. So it, it could fail before your next test, and you might need it before your next test. So, so you want to keep that testing interval fairly short because that, that device will be unavailable from whenever it fails until it's next tested. And, and you want to keep that unavailability quite low. Remember, those are, are typically protective devices. They've been put in because there are severe consequences of failures that you're trying to avoid. Uh, and that's why they're there in the first place. So, so you've got to be kind of careful. So you've got preventive, predictive, detective, as I call testing. Um, you've got running to failure, uh, which, uh, of course, is, is a valid strategy if you've got uh, minimal consequences of failure. Um, you know, if, uh, I used the backup pump example earlier, the, the, the running pump. You can probably afford to let it go to failure and, and as long as you know that that backup is going to start so the backup will have had testing done on it um, the running pump will be basically ignored until it fails so so that's another strategy uh, redesign now there's there's also a, num a number of other uh, one-time changes they kind of work like redesign where they eliminate the causes of failures and they typically come up when you have causes related to human error or, or organizational issues that uh, have resulted in human errors. So, so human error might be an operator doesn't understand the process he's supposed to be following or the procedure, and he makes a mistake. All right. Now, maybe he wasn't trained properly. So it's not his fault if he's not trained properly. Uh, he may be following a procedure that has a mistake in it. Well, fix the mistake 
next time he follows the procedure, he doesn't make the mistake. Um, so, so procedural changes, process changes, um, training changes, um, all contribute to eliminating the causes of some failures. And, and those, those one-time changes are, are, uh, generally, um, uh, quite successful as long as the, the change you make is sustained. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I've, one I see a lot is training uh, coming up, and uh, and then you'll see procedures uh, cropping up. Uh, you know, people the procedures are there, but the procedure was wrong. Maybe somebody made a design change years ago. The procedure should have changed, but nobody changed it. So now people are following a procedure that's actually incorrect. Um, you know, r- rarely is human error the fault of the individual. You know, I don't think anybody goes into work in the morning and says, ah, today I think I'm going to mess up. Uh, you know, they, they don't do that. Um, they, they go in genuinely wanting to get home safely at the end of the day. So they, they want to do a good job while they're there. And uh, and yet they still make mistakes. And, and um, th- that's not always because they did something wrong intentionally. Yeah, if you think back to RCM2 by John Mowbray, he goes through and he lists the different types of human errors in there. And he does. Yeah. All those different psychological issues, there's slips, lapses, mistakes, violations, and only one of the three, someone deliberately set out to do something wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sabotage and, and violations are, are about the only thing that is a, is a deliberate uh, attempt by somebody. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. All right. Exactly. So human error, I agree 100%. It is an issue. We got to address it. But, you know, not there's a lot of things we can do aside from just training and procedures as well to minimize some of those risks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people need to be attentive. And, and if you've got a uh, an operating context environment where, where it's really conducive to people falling asleep on the job, well, maybe you ought to change that environment up a little bit. Um, get them out in the in the plant more often, for example. Uh, you know, that, that can be a big problem. People losing attention or, or very repetitive tasks where it's easy to kind of, kind of just forget what you're doing. And, and at, at some point you, you make a mistake. Uh, that Those are not really the fault of the individual. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of human factors that come to play here and, and, and uh, reliability-centered maintenance is a great way to identify those problems. And, and, and indeed, where I've used it in design stages, that's, that's been where we've actually made some design changes is to uh, get around uh, human error um, or, or also maintainability issues. Uh, you know, we've also identified where maintenance was needed and, uh, uh, you know, in looking at the design, we realized, well, you can't do that in there. So, so you've got to change something about the layout or the access uh, routes and things like that. So there's, there's quite a bit can come out of uh, that to manage failures and, and, and the consequences, right? Like maintainability is really not about, you're not really eliminating business consequences to the failure, except that you're shortening the downtime. And, and that does have a business consequence because that means less runtime if, if you don't do it. Yep, absolutely. And I think as long as we're using RCM to help identify some of those human performance issues as well, then we're leaps and bounds ahead in managing failures because it's not just equipment related stuff. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of people related stuff in there that I think organizations are missing the boat on. Yeah. You know, some years ago, that question came up at a conference and uh, uh, it was about how, how many uh, of all the failures you, you see are caused by humans. 
And, and, a, and a really good answer to that was all of them, uh, because quite frankly, if we didn't build the system in the first place, it couldn't fail. So, so you know, everything that happens in there is a result of uh, something that we as, as, uh, as humans have, have put in place. Uh, it's all due to us ultimately. And, uh, you know, the better we manage us, the better we manage our assets. Absolutely. Now, we have all these things that we got to manage. What do you think makes the biggest difference in being successful when, with managing all failures? The biggest thing to me is a, a proactive, uh, what I'm going to call a proactive reliability mindset. Okay. Uh, you really have to keep the end in mind, the reliability. All right. And, and if you keep that in focus, uh, you, you know, you're going to ask questions around, well, what can we do to improve reliability? What can we do to reduce that downtime? What can we do to eliminate that failure? Um, we're, we're focusing on the end result, not on the activities, right? The activities just become the, the methods, the tools, if you will, that get us there. And, and uh, I, I think what's missing in an awful lot of companies today is that focus on reliability. You'll, you'll hear it talked about. Um, so this is, this is a bit of an elusive concept maybe. But what they're really talking about is what maintenance can we do uh, and not what reliability can we achieve. And, and I, I think that, that focus is what needs to, really needs to, to, to change in order to make a really big difference. I think it also has to change not only in the minds of the maintainers, the folks that are likely listening to this podcast, but their bosses, the operations people, the financial people. Um, I've, I've recently spent quite a bit of time talking with uh, financial officers, operations officers, um, general managers, the folks that kind of hold the, the purse strings and, and make many of the business decisions. They're all outside of the realm of mates and reliability. You don't see reliability engineers becoming general managers and VPs. Um, you rarely see a maintenance manager go beyond that. Uh, you, you know, they, they don't become the general manager or the COO. That's, those are rare individuals that do that. And, and, um, and, and when you look at the people that are in maintenance and reliability, many of them don't really fully understand the total field in, in a very holistic way. Um, this stuff is not taught in business schools. It's not taught in engineering schools. It's not taught uh, to the trades. Uh, it's it's stuff that's learned through uh, largely um, a lot of experience and and through um, uh, you know the, the, through through personal endeavor uh, to learn it. Right? There's books out there. You can go get them. You can go read them. But you know, like you said, you want to go get another book. Well, that's that's because you're driven to learn more. Not everybody is. And and once school's over, they're done with it. That's it. As far as they're concerned, learning's finished. And and um, you, you know, that's that kind of mindset isn't going to help you improve anything. So so it's it's all mindset. Yeah, and that you can deal with internally. I have to agree. If we got the right mindset, people are willing to learn, try new things to manage these failures. That's going to make a huge, huge difference. Yeah. Now, what's the one action you want our listeners to take away from the conversations today around managing all failures? Uh, it's the consequences, not the failures that matter. That's it. <laughs> all right. I agree. The consequences, not the failures. 100%. Isn't that one of the first rules of RCM or something? It, it is one of the first things you'll learn in any RCM training that's that's worth its salt is is it it's all about consequences. In fact, when Jesus and I did the RCM re-engineered book, we, we don't talk about failure management strategies. We talk about failure consequence management strategies. 
Excellent. Yes, I have that book on my shelf and I regularly reference it as well. Another great book by you. And Jesus. Thank you. So, James, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about managing all failures. But before we're, before we go, where can people find out more about you? How can they get in touch with you? All those great things. Uh, well, Google's a great source. Uh, I, I, I Googled my own name. You get loads and loads and loads of hits, so I'm not hard to find. Uh, my website is uh, www.consciousasset.com, and watch how you spell conscious. Uh, <laughs> um, it doesn't change from American to UK English, so just spell it correctly, and, and you get me. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, there's plenty of stuff there. Um, you can email me, james at consciousasset.com. You can call Call me. Um, uh, I'm in Canada. The area, the, the country code's plus one. Area code's 705, and my office number is 4080255. Um, I, I don't like to give out my mobile number because I frankly don't pay that much attention to it. Uh, it's for outgoing calls, not incoming. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, the, the website itself has just a ton of information on it if they want to learn not so much about me, but about reliability, maintainability, maintenance. Uh, uh, things you can do for developing a business case. Uh, there's a wealth of free stuff on that website if, if, if people are interested in going and having a look. And, right. of course, my books. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so with that being said, what resources do you want to share with our listeners? RCM Reengineered has got to be on that list. Is there anything else? Well, there's RCM Reengineered. These are books. Um, RCM Reengineered uh, by Jesus Safonte and myself. There's uh, Uptime Strategies for Excellence in Maintenance Management. That's by uh, John Campbell and myself. Um, John did the first edition. I did the second and third uh, after he passed away, actually. Uh, there's Paying Your Way, uh, which uh, you've mentioned already. Um, that's also available uh, online and, and in, in hard and uh, soft copy. Um, there's uh, a load of blog articles. I think there's 130 or something like that blogs on my website. A number of case studies, a number of articles, presentations, video clips. Um, there's some articles in there by other authors as well. Um, people that I've worked with who uh, I have a lot of respect for who have published material in various periodicals. There's a whole series on the website on um, uh, uh, gas, uh, gas industry uh, machinery. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff on there about um, uh, electric or condition monitoring. Uh, there's there's just it's just a wealth of, in, of of case studies and information on that website that I think you'll find quite interesting. Even even MRO parts. There's a, I've got an area where there's oh I think about half a dozen articles on MRO parts and storeroom management and how to determine correct sparing quantities using risk risk based methods. Uh, something that a lot of people don't do very well. So there's there's just a ton of stuff there and most of it's free. Um, there's stuff you can pay for too, of course. That's the whole idea, but. Um, but there's quite a bit there that uh, there is no need to pay for it. All right. Excellent. So I will make sure to put links to all those in the show notes. Everything you mentioned there, I'll have in there. Jim, Terrific. Well, thank you for taking the time again. It's greatly appreciated. Always enjoy talking reliability and maintenance things with you. Um, as always, I walk away with some more questions I have to go answer now. Uh, but that's a good thing. Keep me learning. <laughs> Okay, terrific. Well, thank you, James, for the opportunity. I, like, like you, I enjoy these conversations, and and uh, it, it it gives me pause to to think about what I'm doing too. And uh, uh, you know, in in answering uh, you know your questions, I, I have to actually reflect a little bit and, and say, well, am I still doing this the right way? You know, and it's, so it helps me keep on my toes. Thank you. 
I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.